Right, hey, yes, folks. Uh, this is part two of the first episode in the new series. So if you haven't listened to part one, please go back and do that because this this just gets right, picks up right where it left off, and doesn't really give any context. So if you just start listening from here, you won't, you probably won't really know what the fuck's going on. So uh, go back and listen to part one, and then come back and check this out. But before we get going with the episode properly, uh, just another bit of housekeeping to get out of the way. I mentioned at the start uh, that Glushuk pays for the hosting of this podcast. I now also have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash turning earth. Uh, so if you'd like to support this podcast financially, uh, you can go there and throw us a few bob uh, monthly. Um, that'll help me pay for stuff like uh, travel expenses for going to interview people. Uh, and also I'm a freelance worker, so... Uh, basically if I start making money from this I'll be able to do less other nonsense and do more of this so if you want to if you want me to keep looking into these topics and exploring them and telling you about them then uh, you can consider throwing me a few quid on the Patreon page if you don't feel like giving me any of your money or if you're not in a position to that's grand as well um, you don't get any extra special benefits from uh, patronising it you just get that warm fuzzy feeling of supporting independent research or I don't know, journalism is that what I'm doing I'm not sure uh, you get to support me talking to you for a couple of hours on the, hopefully on the regular on the increasingly regular um, but yeah if you can't afford it no stress I'm going to keep putting it up I'm going to keep doing it as much as I can but I do do it in my spare time I just do it whenever I get the chance to whenever I have time between other jobs so um, any financial support will help me focus on this more um, but lastly like I said if you can't that's no stress another way you could help is mainly by telling people about it helping to get the word out about these things uh, or leaving reviews on whatever podcast app you use um, that helps to get recommended to more people so if you want uh, if you think more people should hear about this then please yeah leave a review or tell your mates about it alright so here we go this is part 2 So you can you can gather from listening to Natalia there that the issues with Sitka spruce and monocrop forestry in general or mono monoculture in general is that there's a, such a narrow focus not just in terms of it being focused on profit but also in terms of what you actually have at the end of it uh, like Sitka spruce as she mentioned it's only really good for paneling which is you know is useful but it's only one thing it's kind of similar to in agriculture, uh, government policy and EU policy encourage industrial scale monocrop agriculture. So that's why we've got an overfocus on dairy and animal livestock. Like we, we Ireland exports loads of meat and live animals and dairy. That's pretty much it. Like um, we produce less than one percent of the fruit and vegetables we consume here in Ireland. Uh, most of it's imported, and that's become very uh, relevant recently with the. Countries like France have been talking about ban- banning all their exports while the coronavirus is a thing because they need to make sure that their own people are fed. That would that would leave us in a very vulnerable position if countries like France and Spain started doing that because so much of our food comes from there. So we're just not very self-sufficient as an island, basically. You know, a lot of our needs aren't met locally and it's not because they can't be. It's just because the way things have been organised by our central government have not allowed that to happen. So if you recall earlier on, we talked about biodiversity and how that's important for an ecosystem's resilience, for an ecosystem's health. You can look at the economy as part of the, the ecosystem because it is. Our, our economy is embedded within our ecosystem. It, it's totally dependent on it and enmeshed in it and a part of it. And just like the broader ecosystem becoming weaker because 
it's becoming less diverse. The economy becomes weaker when it's less diverse. It becomes more sensitive to ruptions and it becomes it becomes more sensitive to disturbances or stresses and that obviously has a knock-on effect to the rest of our lives and it's not like this accidentally it's not this isn't just the way it is it's like this because the people who are in government and who have been in government for the last 30 years i'd say have all had a particular ideology a particular economic ideology which is capitalism obviously but also neoliberalism Neoliberalism is essentially, I'm not going to get into it too much, you could spend a whole, God, you could spend hours talking about it and you wouldn't have very much fun, but basically neoliberalism refers to the, the liberalisation of trade, so it, it's much easier for products to cross borders, even though it's still quite difficult for people, for human beings to cross borders, it's much easier for products to do that now. And it basically, the, the result of it is that economies, not just Ireland's economy, but economies all over the world are much more focused on importing and exporting, which, you know, a little bit of trade isn't a problem. But the, the focus on that has, has left us with a situation where many countries all over the world import and export equal amounts of the same thing. So like the States, they import and export equal amounts of timber. Almost the same amount. So it's just really wasteful and unnecessary and doesn't really make any sense. It only makes sense to the middleman class. People who work in finance and who facilitate this. Now I'm not having a go at people who work in management positions and who coordinate things. I mean, that's that's necessary. You need people coordinating stuff. But there's a whole financial class, a middleman class built up around this. And most of the members of our government are from that middleman class. They're from that finance background. I spoke earlier about the board of Quilcha. Most of them come from finance and business backgrounds. Now, like I said, business skills are, are a valid skill set, being able to plan big picture it's useful to be able to account for stuff and to budget and all the rest of it I'm not saying that everyone who's good with spreadsheets should be taken out and shot I'm just saying that having people who are all from the same experience the same background and who have the same narrow set of interests that's going to have a limiting effect on what kind of results you have at the end of the process of whatever it is you're working on if they have such a narrow focus on profit on generating profit for their shareholders it's going to lead to a, a, a really bad situation for the rest of us because business has just moved then where the wages are low. Uh, basically, workers all over the world are at, are at the whims of the market, when really it should be the, the other way around. The market should be there to serve the needs of the people who contribute to it, whereas now we're in this fucked up situation where it's the other way around. I mean, I've spoken a little bit about industry in Ireland and where I come from. Uh, like, I know lads from where I grew up who were fully trained furniture makers, be it in, in upholstery or cabinet making or whatever. They served their time, got trained up, and then that industry just disappeared. And then they got trained again uh, in different building trades, you know, bricklaying, plastering, whatever. Um, and then the crash happened in 2008 and then they were left with their industry disappearing again. So you've got people who trained, you know, highly skilled workers who trained up in two separate industries then just left again. And that's, that has an incredibly demoralising effect on people. And that's not just, as I said, it's not an accidental situation. It's like that because the priorities are all backwards. If our priority was to serve local needs, then that kind of a situation wouldn't arise. But the priority seems to be to make as much money as you can for your shareholders. So that's why we have this situation where stuff is just being bought and sold internationally. It seems like just for the sake of it. There doesn't seem to be any sense to it, really. To take just one example, uh, tuna that gets caught in Japan, then gets sent to the US to be canned, and then gets sent back to Japan to be sold. 
and the reason we have this kind of situation developing and it happens here with different products as well is because what all these governments have in common is that they've bought into the neoliberal economic system which means that the government gives tax breaks and eases rules and regulations to big companies but then taxes the bejesus out of the rest of us and leaves the same sort of regulatory burden on smaller industries and local economies and that's that's why we're in this situation where industries just disappear like productive industries just close down you know, I keep going back to the examples from Navin, but there, there is there's loads of factories in Navin in the seventies that uh, carpet factories and furniture factories that were producing, and then they were just closed. They were producing stuff that people needed, and they just closed and went to another because the industry moved to another country basically. And because we've been living under this system for decades now, we're at a place where ridiculous things seem totally normal. Like for example, the UK, they import one hundred and fourteen thousand tons of milk each year, and they export one hundred and nineteen thousand tons of milk. Now, even a child could tell you it'd make more sense to export 5,000 tonnes of milk and just drink the rest. It doesn't make any sense to just arbitrarily export a load and import a load. And it's led to this ridiculous situation where stuff from abroad is often cheaper than stuff that's produced a couple of miles up the road. So that's kind of fucked up and silly, not just because there's so much waste involved, but it just doesn't serve the needs of the people who, who live... It doesn't serve the needs of the people who live in Ireland or who live in Leitrim or who live in any area in the, of the world at the moment, the neoliberalised world local need doesn't get served locally it's it's we're so dependent overly dependent on these mishmashed systems of import and export that as i said we don't produce most of the fruit and vegetables we eat and we as as natalia has, has shown um sitka, sitka plantations don't meet all of our timber needs by any stretch of the imagination another problem coming clear here is problems of centralized power and control so you've got people with limited imaginations calling the shots. And I'm not trying to be insulting there. Like ev- Everyone's imagination is limited in some way. It's limited by our worldview. It's limited by our experience. It's limited by what we consider to be sensible. Um, so you've got a small number of people limited by their own worldviews calling the shots who don't necessarily have any ties to the land that they control. So they're not in as, as good a position as a local person to decide what's best for, for that habitat. And as well, as well as that, they have a very narrow focus. As I said, they all have this neoliberal agenda, this neoliberal economic focus, which is focused on hyper-production, um, increasing profits at any cost, and essentially it only looks after the needs of this quite narrow upper-class or upper-middle-class grouping of people who work in finance and transnational business, essentially. And now there was a time where the economy used to be a lot more diverse. You know, I, ref- I referred earlier to furniture production. Ireland used to produce, produce sugar and used to produce a wider range of agricultural products and timber products. And we don't do that anymore because we've, we've fully taken part in this system of international trade, this neoliberal globalised system. And it's left us and people in other parts of the world weaker for it. I'm thinking here especially about the trade in tea, coffee, chocolate, sugar. Um, all of these industries are tied up with slavery and exploitation. Just taking the example of chocolate, for example, the vast majority of the world's cocoa comes from Madagascar, where child slavery is a common practice. And these systems, they didn't come out of nowhere. They aren't the products of local people working for each other. They aren't the products of a system where local needs are met locally. They're the products of a system where a small number of people who, as I said, wield 
a disproportionate amount of power make decisions based on their own class in, class interests not their community interests but their class interests the interests of other people who share the same level of wealth and power as they do I spoke a few episodes ago to Fergal Anderson from Tall of Bio uh, on the topic of food sovereignty he's a member also of La Via Campesina which is an international organisation of agricultural workers advocating for a return to, well, amongst other things, a return to a local economy. And this obviously is in direct conflict with the people who who do currently wield power because it's not in their interest for there to be strong local economies because that would that would remove some power from their hands. It would generalise the power amongst the population as opposed to keeping it concentrated in the capital. Um, a man called Abdullah Akalan, the leader of the, the Kurdish resistance movement, I read a chapter of one of his books once and a sentence in it really stuck with me. He said, a nation state will always be a colony of the capital. So even though we have this system of representative democracy where people at least have to look like they're looking after local interests, they're incapable of doing so because they're based in Dublin. So the interests of Dublin and the financial class based in Dublin will always be looked after ahead of the interests of any other community in the country. And there's a real point of tension there and it gets played up. It gets kind of acted out at government level all the time. You see the, the Healy Rays button heads with the Green Party. And it's all, it's all a bit of an act, really. But there is a real point of tension there where big picture issues that affect everyone get decided upon centrally. And then people are told what's going to happen in their community from a central point. And there's a real issue with that because you've got the likes of Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil and the Green Party deciding what rural people should prioritise as if they have a clue. As if they somehow know best now, when I was I was reading through these dull transcripts of the different debates, which I would strongly recommend not doing because it's a, it's incredibly boring. Although it is informative and it can be kind of amusing sometimes. Uh, poor old Richard Boyd Barrett gets an awful bullying from the rest of them. God love him. But uh, yeah, if, I was surprised. I was really surprised to find myself agreeing with uh, one of the Healy Rays. I can't remember which one. He was responding to a motion Eamon Ryan tabled about reforming forestry policy, which I'll get into a bit more later. The, the Bowel Kerry man made the point that uh, in the past you didn't have to tell people in the countryside to look after the environment. They just did it. They just did it through their through their through their everyday activities. You know, they, they planted trees on their land because they saw there was benefit to doing that. They didn't have to be told to. But then the state came along with their monocrop forestry plantation notion and said, "No, do this instead." And now the Green Party are suggesting to reverse that to undo all the damage that the state has done through that uh, narrow-visioned policy. But there's problems there. There's there's, there's big problems there with people who live centrally, who live in the capital, dictating to people throughout the country what they should do with their habitat. Obviously, people aren't going to be happy with a situation like that because nobody's happy being told how to live their lives, especially not when it's being contradicted from one generation to the next. Now, on the other hand, we need a way to distribute the latest information uh, the most up-to-date scientific knowledge. We need a way of distributing that uh, to prevent people from engaging in destructive practices. Um, and right now, the state are the only avenue to do that. The government, they kind of claim to do that, but they clearly don't because they're, they're more than capable of ignoring science that contradicts their already decided-upon worldview. Hope I'm not getting too rambly now. It's basically just how do we have solidarity with each other? in a way that doesn't need to be coordinated by a central government because it, it, it's too slow and inefficient and it clearly isn't working. Because you've got people in central government, in the Dáil, who just don't care about the ordinary economy. They don't care about the day-to-day lives of people who work 
in yeah the, I like that phrase the ordinary economy it just describes like people who work in building people who work in gardening people who work in shops people who actually produce things and make things and move things around people who work the land their needs aren't met our needs aren't met now at the end of part one there Natalia spoke briefly about the need to diversify forestry practices um, so not just for the sake of protecting habitats but also to diversify them in ways that would benefit people um, not just the financial middle managers that I've been talking about there the, w- the one that I'm going to focus on a little bit now is because I just don't I don't want to leave on just pure negativity um, so to kind of uh, prep you for the next episode we'll talk a little bit now about the approach known as community forestry. So basically what community forestry is, is that the local community are given the rights to make a living from the forest as long as it's done in a sustainable fashion. Uh, One example of this is uh, in Guatemala. They've got the Maya Biosphere Reserve there. It's uh, 5 million acres of rainforest managed by nine local communities in a decentralised fashion. Um, So the theory is that if, if people make their living from their forests, then they protect the forest. And the reality of it is, is that this has proven more effective in stopping deforestation than the nearby protected areas. So I talked earlier about how the special protected area of Shuadakon Bay in northwest Mayo had a pipe put through. It was very easy to, to because that was centrally controlled and centrally decided upon, um, very easy for the, the powers that be to decide, ah, no, do you know what, it doesn't matter that that's protected, we can unprotect it now. But if you have a community of people, depending on the area for their livelihoods, they'll defend it. And to take that example in Guatemala, the, the efforts of the nine communities are overseen by a, for, a forest stewardship council. And that there is a pretty key concept, stewardship. The idea that what, what we have in Ireland is a system of land ownership, where people own land and can sell it on and pass it down. If we could replace that concept with a concept of stewardship, which basically means you're looking after the land, until the next person comes along. You could apply that to housing just as easily. Instead of people owning houses, they use it and live in it until they no longer require it and then it's passed on to someone else who needs it. It's fairly straightforward. I know it sounds utopian, but it's just... If we had the will, and the political will, to make a situation like that a reality, we could. Of course we could. And now, there is a world of difference between that hypothetical situation and the current situation in Dublin where real estate investment trusts and property agencies essentially buy up huge tracts of land, huge amounts of apartments and rent them out at extortionate prices to people. That's, there's no ownership there, but that's that's very different to the concept of stewardship. That's an exploitative relationship. And the key to avoiding that exploitation is to share decision-making power. Essentially, community forestry means allowing the community to to take a role in how the, the forest is managed. I read a quote from a fellow called Bill Reed, who's an American planning consultant, and he said, Instead of just doing less damage to the environment, it is necessary to learn how we can participate in the environment. Now, there's loads of examples all over the world of uh, other than Guatemala, where community forestry has been implemented successfully. It usually involves basically just a government recognising the indigenous people that are already there and saying, yeah, use clearly have this sorted out so we'll just leave these at it and give you the key thing is giving them the right to the land and uh, sorry I shouldn't say giving it to them but like acknowledging that they already have the right to the land and that they know best basically um, now that doesn't seem to always have the result that you would hope in terms of biodiversity but it, it mainly does but equally importantly it it, it, uh, it recognised the rights of indigenous people to live to live on their ancestral land that they have done for generations 
So I'll throw up more examples in the next episode, but for now I just want to talk a little bit about uh, a couple of papers I read from the IUFRO, the International Union of Forest Research Organisations. So they're um, an international union, as you might guess from the name, of organisations that are linked to the industry and that are linked to academic institutions um, who study forests and forestry policy all over the world. The information I could find on their database seemed to seemed to confirm a lot of the assumptions that community forestry is based on, which is that it seems like wherever it's implemented, that having that sense of ownership is really important. And ownership in this sense means ownership over the, the decision-making structures, not, not ownership over the land itself in the way that you have title to the land, but ownership over the, the process that, that governs it. Because people just seem to not care as much if they think the state can pull it out from under their feet at any stage. But if, if, if the local community, through uh, some local organisation, like in Guatemala, the Forest Stewardship Council, here we've got local, local councils that have absolutely no power um, at the moment, but if they could have real say over what happens in the local area and if there was genuine dynamic participation from the people who live in the area with the councils, there's no reason that that can't be not directly implemented, but there's no reason we can't learn from these things. Because that's that's something that's that's missing from governance on this island because we have a system of representative democracy. So most people can't take meaningful part in making the decisions that affect their lives and their local community. But one of the main findings of these studies I was looking at is that local rulemaking strongly related to improved forest cover. So if it's genuinely quilches and the state's goal to conserve biodiversity and also to allow for production beneficial to humans, then this seems like a model that we should be looking at. Another interesting finding of these studies was that one of the biggest causes, uh, one of the main threats to forest life and to, and to biodiversity is uh, big international investors buying land in low and middle income countries, uh, in some cases millions of acres. Is that that? should sound familiar at this point. You know, Natalia spoke earlier about the Canadian pension funds buying up lots of forestry land. Interestingly enough, uh, one of the biggest landlords in the country is a Canadian investment fund. Um, well, to be specific, they're a, a real estate investment trust, a rate, or E-I-T. They're called IRES rate. Uh, I think it's like Irish real estate, or I- Irish residential something or other real estate investment trust. I-R-E-S or E-I-T. You can look them up. Uh, their boss last year was awarded a bonus of essentially doubling their salary. Her salary was doubled from 330000 to 660000 on the backs of ripping Dubliners off, essentially. Um, that's something that's happening here, well, in Dublin, here and around the country, that hedge funds, investment funds, uh, pension funds are buying up properties left, right and centre and benefiting from the seriously overinflated rental market that there has been in this country. Um, so it's interesting to see the parallels there between housing and forestry. Our home, their home. The homes of our human cultures and the homes of nearby animal cultures are being exploited essentially. They're being used as products to buy and sell. Um, it's an exploitative relationship. And there's a really nice definition I came across here of community forestry, which is it's essentially the opposite of that. It's a system wherein the symbiotic relationship of people with the forest makes them managers and saviors of the forest. So that's a symbiotic relationship, a mutually beneficial relationship. A very straightforward example of that is if you think about hazel trees 
um, a technique called coppicing is used, which is basically you take a small, you take a cutting from the tree, and when you cut off that hazel rod, several other rods grow in its place. And um, what's what's interesting about that is that a hazel tree alone lives to about 90 years, but if it's coppiced, it can live to up to 500. So there you've got it. Humans benefit from the wood. The hazel benefits from prolonged life and in increased quantity. It grows bigger. It's more successful. And yeah, while it's true, hazel rods, you can use them for uh, making tools. You can use them for small, non-intrusive structures, such as polytunnels in the garden, uh, small temporary or uh, semi-permanent structures and of course they also produce food in the form of hazelnuts so they've you know limited use but so does a wood panel um i'd say in many ways the hazel tree is a more versatile crop than sitka spruce um and again i'm not saying we just replace sitka with hazel um what i'm saying is and what natalia's saying is and what an overwhelming amount of scientists and industry professionals even are saying is that you just need diverse woodland for all sorts of reasons. Another important concept which uh, works in conjunction with community forestry is agroforestry, so uh, where agriculture and forestry are integrated. A fine example of this is the Amazon rainforest, where over four and a half thousand years of continued human habitation has resulted in a situation where there is such an abundance of edible plants in the forest, and that's because human beings have been practicing a kind of polyculture, so Again, think about monoculture, one crop, polyculture, many crops. A type of polyculture agroforestry uh, over millennia. Um, so this is a much longer time scale than the, the sort of five-year political cycle that we normally deal with. This is people thinking long, long, long term. And the result of it now is that the the, the soil in the Amazon is so rich and uh, can sustain so many different kinds of crops that are for humans, but it, it's in such a way that it's integrated into their natural habitat. There's two important points. There's two important points to bring up alongside that. One is that that obviously sustains sustains a much smaller population. And the second one is that, and this is the most important, there's a long unbroken tradition of people living in the forests in the Amazon. In Ireland, we've lost that, that part of our history and we've lost those skills to time. So I'm not saying the exact same thing can be applied to Ireland, but I'm saying there's stuff we can learn from this practice. Because it has clear benefits, like, I mean, they've got they've got a healthy, vibrant ecosystem. They've also got food and products to sustain themselves with. They've got it all. Um, so we can figure that out as well based on the knowledge that they've built up over millennia. It, vol- it involves thinking long term and it involves reclaiming some skills that we've been told are old fashioned and useless. If you want to he- learn more about that, go back and listen to the episode on food sovereignty where I interviewed uh, Lucy O'Hagan from Wild Awake. Uh, that's her uh, that's her old thing is, is kind of reclaiming those ancestral skills. So while all these approaches are scientifically and empirically proven to be effective um, and they can be adapted from one situation to another, it's important to note that indigenous wisdom got there first, basically. Indigenous wisdom in many ways has been millennia ahead of scientific thought. When I say indigenous, I'm talking about the tribes that live in the Amazon or First Nations peoples in uh, North Amer- on the North American continent. Um, but here in Ireland too, we, there one, that wisdom was once here as well. If you look at our mythology, um, and I know it's, it might seem a bit vague to be looking at, at, at mythology, but bear with me for a second. It's important to look at our culture because 
and aspects of our culture like that because culture can either help us help keep us grounded in reality or it can distract us it can do both of those things and myth can have the the effect of keeping you grounded in reality if you look at our old mythology look at the stories of Nafina there is an, an equality of respect between the people and the habitat they inhabited basically there was um, there was an awe of na- for nature and a respect for nature that is missing I think in how we look at the world now but it's in our mythology and it's in our history if you look at it you know one example that comes to mind is uh, if you think about the story of Cú Cullen the myth of uh, the, the, myth, the mythological uh, hero of Ulster, Cú Cullen. He was um, supposedly he was he was capable of doing all sorts of uh, amazing, mind-boggling things. But one of the one of his most renowned skills was he was able to jump really high in the air. They called it his salmon leap. And if just dwell on that for a second, there's 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 a, w- a wonderful expression: parity of esteem. Parity basically just means equality. So parity of esteem that both parties are held to the same level of respect and in comparing in comparing something that a human hero does to something that an animal does you're recognising the strength of that animal you're recognising that God this guy can jump so high he's almost as good as a salmon at jumping and I know that that might sound a bit silly but what I'm talking about that's just, and that's just one example of where the natural world and the human world in our mythology are intertwined intimately and like I said, just look at the stories of Nafina. They lived in the woods and it was as important as it was for one of the Fianna to be good at fighting. They also had to be amazing poets and they had to have this wonderment for, for nature. They talk about um, in Finn McCool, that's a, that's a major trait of his personality growing up in the myth is that he, he, he would often spend hours just looking at the trees or looking at the foxes or going out and like hunting, but also just going out and looking around. And there was an awe and a respect there. And I know you, it's it's dodgy territory when you start talking about myth because you're in danger of getting brushed off as a hippie. But I think it's I think it's important to look at these things and to look at what we've lost in thinking that we're somehow better than that. And also, it might seem a little bit ironic for me to talk about how culture can keep you grounded in reality, and then going on and talking about mythology. But um, it's not that you know these stories obviously aren't 100% real. But all I'm saying is there's wisdom in them if if you care to listen for it. Um, and there's great joy in, in learning about them as well and in hearing them being told by someone who has a flair for telling them but anyway yeah, speaking of uh, speaking of being grounded in reality um, I'll leave you with a bit more from uh, from Natalia now I asked her uh, if she could describe what the aims of the Save Leitrim campaign are her very cool dog Rooster makes an appearance at some point as well so uh, don't be disturbed if you hear any funny background noises um, the campaign's aim is to so- stop Sitka Spruce, <laughs> is, would be the kind of the general, I guess that's kind of basically it, is just to stop the further planting of Sitka Spruce and Leitrim. A really bar- big part of Leitrim has already been planted. And um, so there's, um, like, I'm, I'd am i say, uh, like, everyone else is from Leitrim and uh uh, a lot of them would be farmers. A lot of them do come from farming backgrounds, and for them, it is about saving farms. So, a lot of um, though there's some people who like it's very much like there's, you know, about like trying to save bird habitats or trying to just do it for ecological purposes. But the main thing is to just like review policy, try to change policy around it, stop just sick of getting planted. Like um, 
Save Leitrim would be involved in going down to appeal a lot of forestry. Like a lot of people would write to Save Leitrim uh, for advice on what to do if um, a plantation, if land near them has been sold to be planted. Uh, a lot of it is in trying to change government policy and trying to do things through that kind of legal means that yeah, legal yeah. way and just draw attention to the issue, I guess. Yeah. yeah. What, what's that been like, like trying to dialogue with the government? Um, like, as you said, like, I think a lot of people who don't live rurally or aren't, don't, haven't seen the issue for themselves. I think a lot of politicians maybe wouldn't know why commercial forestry is a problem at the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the dog in the background that's coming through. Um, so there's the challenge in that, just trying to bring awareness to the people who do have power to actually make some kind of change. Um, and um, it's very it's very difficult, and you do kind of wonder like why it's so difficult you kind of wonder like who's making money and where are they making the money and what interests do they have like if it is this difficult to like save leachum had a big protest up in dublin um in front of the government buildings and then they were like okay well we'll do this study on forestry and the study's coming out the results are supposed to be out today actually um so they were like well let's come down and do like a study of like the economics and the social aspects and the environmental effects of forestry um but you kind of wonder when you read everything coming out of the government everything they're pushing at the moment you wonder what that study is going to come back saying you wonder who they're actually going to have talked to because like you could just talk to people who work in forestry and you could just get one side of the issue. It seems very hard, but I don't know. I've never been involved with anything that's tried to change government policy before. So maybe it's always really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It seems like it's a slow moving ship. Yeah. Um, and we just don't have the time. That's the problem. It's like if they keep planting the bogs and if they keep like, you know, it, it's not going to take that much more planting of curlew habitats to like wipe out all the habitats. You know, there's not, that many places for curlews left to breed um, and hen harriers. So it's how long does it take government policy to change? And and we, we just don't have the time to wait anymore, you know? So on the topic of government progress, uh, I'm showing my innocence here, but I I became slightly concerned that, oh, shite, you know, I interviewed Natalia last August. I bet you this, loads of this information is probably out of date now. Of course it isn't. I looked on the the Dahl's uh, website, the records of the Dahl debates, and forestry's come up only once or twice since then uh, in the Dahl chamber. The Eamon Ryan put forward a motion to change forestry policy on the 1st of October last year, and all that happened basically was the, the Fine Gael minister, I can't think of his name, he, uh, he, this is a common delaying tactic that Fine Gael used to block policy that they don't like. He just put forward some motion to water downloads, and then two weeks later, the, that, like, the amendment to water down was voted against. So the proposal stands. It was a decent proposal, um, but it's 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 literally come up that one time and been discussed once. So that's nearly a year ago. And when you think about the timescales we're working with here, like I said, the UN says we have about 50 or 60 years worth of soil left. Um, the, the, the negative effects of this, we're coming up against them already and they're only going to get worse. So we really can't be waiting around fucking about and talking shite. Like we need to just get it done, you know? So I'll pass you back to Natalia now for a final word. Um, this is a common argument that environmentalists come up against. There's this like false tension between jobs 
and doing what's right for our habitats and for our ecosystems. Um, it's kind of a false choice. It's like you can either choose jobs or you can choose have a healthy environment. Um, I hope I've demonstrated a little bit in this episode that those two things can go together. But uh, I'll leave Natalia to address that now. Like, there's no reason, like, you hear people be like, but jobs or whatever. And it's not like, I mean, the people in Save Leitrim, they're like politicians and school teachers. They're not the kind of people who want job loss. You know, they're the kind of people who want people to have jobs. Like, there's no reason the forestry industry couldn't re-educate themselves just a little bit to start doing something that's more in tune with both the environment and with their neighbors. Because, like, it's just crazy. Like, when they were um, clear felling around here, like, they'd come at, like, four in the morning and the whole, you'd be woken up because the earth shakes because the trucks are so big. Or, like, you know, the trees are huge and they cut the tree and throw it on the ground so the, everything shakes. And, like, you're so, you know, big industrial lights are shining in your windows where there aren't any rows for them to shine in your windows. And it's really upsetting because... Like you're just watching the earth just be torn apart and they don't communicate really. They don't like, you have to like really try to find out who owns the land and you really have to try to find out who to talk to. Like forestry is like, commercial foresters are the worst neighbors. Like there's, you know, they're just totally absent, but then their trees are falling on your land and then they're just cutting everything down and everything's going, you know, and you don't know who to talk to. And so, and there's no planning around it. Like you don't like, can you imagine like, somebody getting planning to build a building that like, you know, over 30 years will grow 60 stories tall, slowly cut out all your light and then suddenly fall onto your land. Like, but that's what these trees are pretty much so. So that was it from Natalia. Uh, thanks very much, Natalia, for taking the time to, to speak to me about this. Um, I learned a lot in talking to Natalia and it, it set me off on a track to learn about a lot of different things that I hadn't really thought about before. But one of the main things that stuck with me that Natalia has as highlighted here, is the, just the lack of respect. The last few words from her there, she was highlighting a lack of respect for the, the human community around the plantation. But just across the whole thing, there's a huge lack of respect for all the non-human life that gets affected by it, uh, the plant and animal life. And there's just, it just, there just seems to be a severe misunderstanding of the vitality and the, the wholeness of it. The, a forest is essentially, from what I can tell, it's a web of, of, of relationships of plants and animal species that interrelate together. There's so much, there's such an abundance of life in a forest. One acre of forest soil and one acre of forest, you've got about four tons of bacteria, a ton and a half of fungi buried deep in the soil, about 90 pounds of slugs and snails, 50 pounds of spiders and about nine pounds of beetles. Um, with the oak tree alone, the oak tree, there's over... 280 insects associated with the oak tree. You think of Sitka spruce that just attracts the poor pine weevils that then are left without a home when it gets clear felled and then get killed by insecticide. The oak tree hosts up to 200 or, or over, sorry, 280 different species of insect. And on the topic of relationships, one of the coolest things I learned while I was looking into this was uh, it was recently discovered that there's a, a fungal network underneath the soil, the mycorrhizae, and they, they colonize the roots of plants, but this, it spreads, it's, it, it, it's been called the internet of trees. It essentially spreads beneath the soil. It spreads out and connects all the plants via their root systems. And it gets used to send nutrients between plants. And it also facilitates communication. So if one plant is lacking in certain nutrients, another plant can send nutrients to that plant. Trees do it between each other all the time. And interestingly enough, 
they also help out other species. They help their own species first, but they also help other species. Um, and plants can send each other different, different signals to let each other know that if there's drought coming, um, if they're yeah, if they're lacking water, or or if they um, if there's a pest, or even a herbivore, if 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 an animal is eating their leaves. One example I came across was that uh, I can't remember what breed of tree it was, but if a herbivore comes along and eats the leaves, it sends a signal through the mycorrhizae um, to let another tree of the same species know, and then that tree secretes. Uh, all tr- all plants are, uh, secrete what are called volatile organic compounds. They kind of, maybe you could kind of compare it to sweating, but they put out different chemicals depending on what it is they need to communicate to the rest of the environment. So if one tree gets eaten or, or chewed away at by a herbivore, it can send a signal to the other trees and those other trees can increase the level of caffeine in their, uh, in their leaves, which is off-putting to the herbivores. Uh, so it protects the other trees. Um, or they can do the same thing with uh, insects. They can use their uh, the VOCs, the volatile organic compounds, to repel insects that eat them and attract insects that pollinate them, for example. And the plants can communicate with each other uh, through this. This this came up earlier with the, when we were talking about carbon sequestration. It's the, the mycorrhizae that colonise the roots that actually allow the, the plants to transfer the carbon into the soil because they and this, it's the car- well. This is what I read anyway. I don't fully understand how this works, but basically, it's it's the amount of carbon in the soil is what determines how much water the soil can hold onto. So it's good for the life of the whole forest to to have carbon in the in the soil, and it's good for us to have it out of the air, obviously. So as well as communicating through these mycorrhizae, these fungal networks, plants also communicate using sound. And this is another recent discovery. This fucking, well, this in particular is a recent discovery. It kind of blew my mind a bit that plants, they make ultrasonic high-pitched squeals when they're stressed now that it, it, essentially they kind of they scream not in the way a human screams but they it's it's been found that a plants emit sounds um when they've been starved of water if their stems are cut and this is part of that warning system where they can tell other plants like i said they can tell other plants about drought um it was found that plants that aren't stressed in a normal condition emit one sound per hour Plants that are stressed emit between 25 and 35 sounds per hour. Um, now the implications for human food production in this is that if you could harness that, if you could, it, the, the microphones used to pick up and the te- equipment used to detect these sounds is quite sophisticated, but if you could generalise that, uh, it would go a long way to helping water efficiency in agriculture. But the key thing here is, the, the main thing I'm trying to get across here is that an awful lot goes on in a forest that we don't, we're only... We're learning more and more about all the time, but like I said, forest is a series of relationships. It's not just a few trees that we can cut down for wood. It's a lot more than that. It's a web of complicated relationships between plant life, animal life, and human life. Well, of course, we are just animal life. We we sometimes forget that we're animals, that we're part of that, that we're part of the animal kingdom. We like to pretend that we're separate from it, that we're somehow above it. Um, but that's just that's just a bit of ego getting in the way. There is there's no actual basis for us to think that we're somehow better we might be the apex predator we're the, the, the dominant species but that doesn't mean we're superior we're still 100% a part of the broader web of life and no amount of uh, it doesn't matter how many notions we get like we're not we're, we're not separate from it like we're just not an example of this very human arrogance and I, I'm saying like I'm, I'm being harsh now but like it, it is just arrogance and an example of it came up in, in myself while I was reading about this, you know, I read that study about plants making sounds 
and the people who wrote the study were obviously very careful not to call it a scream you know they called it a high frequency noise an ultrasonic ultrasonic means it's beyond the level of human hearing but of course a high pitched noise that a living thing makes I mean we in most contexts we classify that as a scream um, and that's what I initially thought I was like Jesus the plants are screaming that's mad isn't it Um fucking hell then I read into it a bit more and I was like okay so what happens is when the plant becomes water stressed or attacked by a herbivore or some kind of insect that predates the plant they they essentially release air bubbles it's a process called cavitation where um, the the liquid in their stems is replaced by water vapour it's replaced by uh, a gas I guess and then the pressure is released and that's what makes these little pop sounds so I thought ah oh, well that's not, I mean, that's not really communication, is it? That's just, they're just releasing gas, releasing air. But then I thought, that's all we do when we fucking speak. Like, all I'm doing right now is like, um, there's a thing wobbling in my throat, my vocal cords are just vibrating and they're making the air vibrate. You know, and there's carbon dioxide coming out. Like, I'm just releasing gas. And you understand it. So, I'm, sh- like, I'm not saying the way we communicate and the way plants communicate is exactly the same, but looking at it from that point of view like why is what we do so much more special and interesting than what the plants do you know I mean it's more interesting to me if I heard if I could hear those plants popping I probably wouldn't discern much meaning from them without the help of uh, you know the scientists who've studied it I can extrapolate meaning from hearing other people speak and I can understand their emotion but I suppose that's just what I'm getting at you know I'm not saying plants feel emotions I don't know if they do or if they don't but there's more to them than we think and there's more to there's more to the, to the rest of the living things on this planet than we think or dedicate much of our time to thinking about. You might guess from listening to this uh, that I'm a believer in using the scientific method, that uh, I trust in science and that I follow scientific progress, and that's true. But there are some issues with the scientific method. And the main problem with scientific, with I suppose not just with science, but with what's called rationalism. Rationalism is the belief that you can explain, the belief that you can explain anything about the world using your rationality. And we live in a very rationalistic world, which completely kind of uh, undervalues how important human emotion is. I'm thinking here of the uh, far right talking head Ben Shapiro he has a catchphrase facts don't care about your feelings and he uses this kind of willy nilly to justify being a bit of an arsehole he loves to say that to put people down facts don't care about your feelings well facts aren't capable of of caring about anything because that's just just not what facts do I mean I don't really know how to describe why that's stupid but I guess you'll get it A, a a more appropriate way of putting it I think would be that feelings don't care about facts sometimes Sometimes, no matter how many facts you throw at someone like Ben Shapiro, you're not going to change their feelings, because feelings don't care about facts. And that's one of the many problems with the rationalistic approach, with scientific rationalism. Now, rationalism is important. It basically just means using reason and using logic to figure out a situation. Instead of just relying on your emotional response or on your own ideology, you will use logic and reason to figure out the truth. But there's danger in neglecting the emotional side of things. Uh, René Descartes was one of the 
early promoters of this style of thinking, one of the early developers of it, of this belief that you can explain the world just through observation and empiricism and using your rationality alone. Uh, René Descartes believed that animals were machines and it's taken hundreds of years for scientific thought to develop enough to realise that that's a load of bullshit. Um, I'm thinking here of uh, the Indian scientist Sir Jagadish Chandra Bose. I might be butchering his name there, I'm sorry if I am, but um, he was one of the first scientists in the modern era to demonstrate that uh, plants are as alive as any other life form. You know, he, he, he said, all around us plants are communicating, we just don't notice it. We just don't know how to hear it yet. So he was able to show back in 1901 that plants, like any other life form, are sensitive to environmental factors like light and sound, something that we just take for granted as a fact nowadays, and something which indigenous cultures knew, knew this. And I don't want to romanticise anything here, but it's worth dwelling on that for a second, that indigenous cultures all over the world and on this island in our history, our ancestors on this island knew this intrinsically as well. They knew that plants were alive. There's indigenous cultures all over the world where people just know plants are alive. They didn't need science to tell them and the way they know plants are alive is because they use their intuition and their emotional sensitivity. And like I said, I don't want to romanticise um, or, or oversimplify indigenous or rural culture here. I, they don't just use their, their intuition but this is a very practical kind of sensitivity. It's a method, methods that could develop over, over generations. You know, the ability to track animals using the temperature of the soil, the ability to track shoals of fish by feeling the wind and judging the position of the clouds in the sky. It's experience, it's empiricism. All I'm saying is that they, they just, they don't neglect the emotional aspect. Um, if you think about a common approach in science is to, in the modern scientific approach is to take things out of context, to isolate things. There's an obsession with isolating things down to their smallest element, taking them, removing them from their relationships and studying them in isolation. There's, there's stuff to be learned from that, but there's only so much to be learned. You can't understand a thing properly outside of its context. I mean, that's that's not how all scientists operate. It's not how all branches of science operate. And that I think that's changing now. There's, there's a greater appreciation for the need to study things as a... Well, for the last few decades, that 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 the importance of that has has become kind of just generally accepted. That you need to kind of study the whole system. Um, but basically, yeah, all I'm saying about indigenous people, people who live rurally, people who still work the land, is that they simply just haven't internalized this false notion that we are somehow not part of the animal kingdom. Uh, we're related emotionally and f physically. We're interdependent with the rest of our habitat, the plants and the animals. Now, I'm not saying that plants feel emotion, uh, although I suspect that they probably feel something akin to emotion that we as animals just don't have the sensitivity for, or the sensibility for. Um, so we can, obviously we can relate to other humans most easily, then we can we can relate to animals on an emotion level, like you think about your dog or cat or, or some other animal that's in your life, you can relate to them emotionally. And we kind of take it for granted that animals can experience and feel emotion but the, the, the history of scientific thought the history of rationalism doesn't really allow for that like I, I spoke earlier about René Descartes who um, believed that animals were machines and although people no longer believe that 
that that type of that way of thinking about the world has trickled down into the way into the language we use for describing the world. Like think about livestock and or fish stocks. You know, th- these are animals; these are living things, and we talk about them as stock. We talk about them as objects. Um, that's just one straightforward example of how this way of thinking about the world is still there in subtle ways. And it, it, it does great harm to us as humans as well because it, it disconnects us, as I said, from, from the habitat which we are a part of, whether we admit it or not, or whether we recognise it or not. Although we live in a place enclosed by concrete, but enclosed by bricks and mortar and timber constructions most of the time, we, we are still a part of that, that web of relationships. And uh, we're, we're essentially linked to all plant and animal life in the world in, in many, many complicated ways. And although we may find other humans and, to a degree, other animals a bit easier to relate to than plants, that doesn't mean plants are any less vital than we are. Essentially what I'm getting at is plants are very, very complex creatures, just like every other creature that lives on the planet. Maybe they're a bit less complex than animals, I don't know. But they are far from fully understood by humans. Um, and it's, although... I rely on science so much and I, it helps me understand the world, uh, biology and ecology and earth system sciences and physics and chemistry. Learning about these things helps me understand the world better. The history of it and the effect it's had is that it's, it's, it's been part of that, the great separation that's philosophically that has come between us and the rest of the world, the rest of the living world. So while rationalism is a useful tool, it's important not to rely on that solely. The, the, the modern approach to forestry, you could say it's, it came from a rationalistic approach, but I, I, I would hope we'd have demonstrated, and Natalia demonstrated in her conversation, that it's, it's actually really irrational. But it comes from a purely rationalistic approach, com- completely neglecting the emotional and intuitive approach, which will tell you that you know, a forest is a very, very complex ecosystem. It's a complex web of relationships. Um, it's not just where we get our timber from. It's it's so much more than that, and it needs to be valued for what it is in its entirety. I opened up this episode on forestry by talking about extinction, so I suppose it'd be it'd be only fitting to to finish up by speaking about extinction again. One of the one of the most interesting things I learned while looking into this topic is that every species has an average lifespan. And I don't mean individually, I mean just like we as individuals have a lifetime. We've got a time between birth and death. There's a time that we come into existence and there's a time that we leave existence. The only two certainties in life, birth and death. Happens to all of us, it's unavoidable. Just like that's true for us as individuals, it's also true for every species as as in like from the moment the species comes into existence and the moment it goes extinct, there's an average lifespan. So we all have a lifetime, we have an average lifetime. A species, end to end, has an average lifetime. And the average lifespan of a species on Earth is one million years. So there's a time where they they mutate, they they, they evolve and they, they emerge as a distinct species. And then there's the time they go extinct, where they disappear from existence happens to every species. They come into existence and they leave existence. Human beings have existed for around 200,000 years. So when you consider that in terms of the average lifespan of a species, which is one million years, you could say that we're just about emerging from our adolescence, really. 
you know, we're just about leaving our teens. Now, I'm sure the, 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 the lifetime of a human doesn't map perfectly onto the lifetime of a species, but I'm using, I'm being metaphorical here, so just, you know, bear with me for a while. And if you think about the history of human existence, there was a time before we had the written word. There was a time even before we had spoken language, much like in our own childhood. The childhood of our species was marked by a different sort of communication than what we have now. We, we don't fully know how people communicated that before language, but we've had language for, I suppose language is one of the markers of our, of our early evolution. But there was a long time there where we didn't have the written word. And when we were a hunter-gatherer society, and there was less of a, less of a sense of separation. And at that time, we can't know with any certainty what life was like, but we can look at other hunter-gatherer societies around the world and we can use archaeological evidence to build some kind of a picture of what life was like. And it seems like for a hunter-gatherer, there's less of a sense of separation between them and their habitat. They're part of an ecosystem. They see themselves as part of an ecosystem. And the wider world is a bit more of a mystery. It's possible we probably didn't even know that we lived on a world. We just knew our habitat, we knew our immediate environment. We had no concept of there being people all over the planet. And gradually we developed these skills of language and skills of writing and we started recording the sum of our accumulated knowledge. We even, we even put music onto paper. We started recording all of the built up knowledge over the generations, writing it down on parchment, on vellum, on paper, and eventually on computers. Now I'm skipping a few steps there. There was a printing press at some point as well, but you, you know what I mean. And now we've had so many technological advancements over the last few centuries. We've, we've kind of lost, we've built such a barrier between ourselves and the rest of the world that we've kind of lost a sense of being part of an ecosystem, although we, we are, there's no escaping it, but we've lost that, that understanding of it. And although it may be that through connective technologies like the internet, we're starting to develop something of a global consciousness, some kind of sense that we are one species with common interests, or at least we have the potential to develop that sense, but we're, we're all aware now that there's people all over the planet. We all know something about people on the opposite side of the world, even if we don't fully understand their culture. We know they're there and we, kind of, we have some notion of what it's like. But in developing that global consciousness, we've lost some sense of our, our local consciousness, of our immediate ecosystem. And it makes me think there, there's, in, the, in political conversations nowadays, there's, it's like we're only given two options. You can either be a heartless, globalist, money-hungry elite, or you can be a nationalist, only concerned with your own national interest. Now, they're both bullshit options. I like to think there's... Well, there's a myriad of other options if we just use our imaginations. Can't we have a local consciousness and a global consciousness at the same time? Can't we be inhabitants, full inhabitants of our habitat, while also being aware that we're part of a global species, trying to maintain ourselves on the one planet we have to live on? But essentially, what I'm getting at here is, although we've made a mind-boggling amount of social and technological advancements over the last few millennia, over the last few thousand years of human existence, empires have arisen and fallen. We've changed as a species culturally and even genetically in many, many ways. But we have yet to find our niche. Like I said, if you, if you look at the average lifespan of a species and map our lifetime onto it, map our, our species lifetime, we're only coming out of adolescence. We haven't really figured out where we fit yet. We're still pushing the boundaries. 
If we're not careful, we're going to burst through the global boundaries and we're not going to have a planet to live on. We're not going to have enough resources to sustain ourselves. And it thinking about things that way just makes the, the arrogance of of politicians and people who... Saw, th- there's an argument I come up against all the time, which is the, the, the whole human nature argument. People say, oh, humans are just inherently selfish. It's in our nature. And that just seems as like it, it, a bit premature, considering we've only been around for 200,000 years. You know, our, our time to disappear will come, but it's possibly a long way off yet. We could, we could have another 800,000 years left if we play our cards right. So the notion that human nature is a fixed thing and that we know all there is to know about it is false. We have some understanding of ourselves, but we don't understand ourselves that well yet. And we're also constantly changing. So it's important to remember that we don't know everything. And if you look back, if you look back at the history of science and the, all the technological advancements that have been made in such a short period, we can look back even a hundred years or, yeah, you don't even have to look back that far, a like hundred years and look at the, look at what existed then versus what exists now. How quaint the telegraph machine seems. How primitive Morse code seems compared to being able to just video call with someone who's on the opposite end of the planet. And now imagine what future humans are going to look back and think. Imagine what future technological advancements are going to bring us closer together. Imagine what future ways of being together we're going to develop over the next hundred years. That's taken a very positive outlook. Because as well as a history of technological advancements, we also have a history of war and misunderstanding and collective trauma. Every single one of us has ancestors who have been through war. Every single one of us, or most of us anyway, on this island have ancestors who have been through famine very recently. We're all living with this in our cultural memory. And I've no doubt that it's affected us on a genetic level, on a very deep level. So we're all coping with this, this history inside of us. I'm rambling now, it's nearly time to finish up. But essentially all I'm trying to say is we haven't got it all worked out yet. We're still in the process of growing up basically. And it's still to be decided what we're going to look like as adults. So that's it for now. That's the first episode of uh, the new series of Turning Earth. Uh, we're going to be, like I said, we're going to be mainly looking at the topic of forestry um, and all the, the bigger kind of stories that there are to get into around that. In the next episode, I did an interview with uh, Sian Kauman, who is a, uh, a an independent researcher and environmental activist. And I'll be talking to her about research she was doing about forestry companies in County Leitrim and also around mining in South America. Uh, and I'll also be getting into the uh, looking more at the ideological bedrock that uh, underpins all of the stuff that we got into in this episode. So, um, yeah, expect more of that more of that head melty stuff I suppose the next episode will be looking at the, the idea of extractivism which is uh, another ideology to me it's linked to neoliberalism which is that it's, it's the practice of just taking and taking and taking and giving nothing back to the habitat it's the way most industries operate at the moment um, and I'll, yeah, I'll be expo- looking at the what ideologies are behind that practice uh, why do we act like this why do why does industry why, how is industry developed this way basically um, so yeah Talk to you next time.